0: This is the Question in Bodies podcast, a catalogue of inconclusive conversations about culture, gender, bodies, literature, movies, and horror. With me, your host Howard David Ingham. In this episode, the death of the mid-budget movie, with guest Raquel Benedict. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Question in Bodies podcast, and. This time, I'm really, really, really chuffed to have online with me Raquel Benedict. Now, Raquel Benedict is the most dangerous Hello. woman in speculative fiction, a writer of fiction and nonfiction, and the host of the Write Good podcast, the podcast that helps you to write good, um, a podcast which is so sharp it can disembowel at 20 paces. Uh, it's just, uh, it's great to have you on, Raquel. <laughs> How are you doing?
1: Thank you. Thank you. I, it's, it's good to be here. And you might also hear my cat screaming in the background.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, Harvey, uh, Harley, isn't <laughs> it? He, Harley is, uh, is also an occasional guest on Right Goods, isn't yeah, he? He's my, he's my co-host. So I feel I've got the full experience after here today. Now, um, we're moving away from the subject of writing. Well, not really, but we're kind of moving slightly away from our usual suspects, subjects, because what what, what are we going to talk about? Um, today. What, what did we decide we were going to talk about?
1: We decided we were going to talk about the death of mid-budget movies and how that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> and how, yeah. I, well, I would argue that I think mid-budget movies are still viable even in the age of streaming if if they're treated properly and distributed proper, properly. Indeed. Now, how would we define a mid-budget movie? Well, I, I mean it's not exactly like a number officially, but a mid-budget movie, it's like a somewhere between a big blockbuster high budget movie, you know, your Transformers, your your MCUs, and between a cheapo low budget indie movie. You're you're chasing Amy's, your 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 clerks, you know, mm-hmm. just somewhere in the middle, somewhere that I don't, I mean it's it's hard to put exactly a number on it, but it's like I don't know, maybe between 15 to 60 million as a budget might be like a, a good range. Right, right. So,
0: you know, a not inconsiderable amount of cash. Yeah, a good also, amount of money. But also also not necessarily a big budget film that someone wants to be artsy either. You know, like no. for example, um, but a lot of horror movies are quite low budget, particularly Super low budget. Super low budget. Um, but I think midsummer didn't strike me as a particularly low budget movie. And i don't think that falls into our category because that's got other things going on doesn't it i think mean, a lot of the mid-budget movies that we're thinking of go kind of fun mm-hmm. in other
1: ways. let me see i'm looking up midsummer budget was nine million dollars usd oh, actually, that's kind it, of cheap. It, it looks it's much more expensive it looks more expensive but it it was pretty cheap and when you yeah. think about it well it's all sets it's like this one set more or less most of it is just takes it's place in a field with some field, wooden buildings.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, fair enough. Most of the, most of the cost is getting in um, Florence Pew. Actually, yeah, probably. probably the single most expensive thing in the movie. Probably, if if not the bear, maybe I don't know. The bear probably wasn't more expensive than Florence Pew, though. To be fair. yeah, I don't know that bear. That bear
1: is a really good agent.
0: I, I, know, I know, I know, right? Although the the bear is one of the only one of the, the only people in that film who do not deserve any of what they get are, are Connie, <laughs> Simon, and the bear. Basically, right.
1: <laughs> the bear yeah. is easily the most likable character. Yeah, basically, you
0: know, it's like although oh, Connie and Simon, I quite like can't yeah, yeah, it. they, but, they did know, nothing they wrong. They didn't deserve any of what they got. You know, they had they had a, some their moral backbone and everything.
1: But yeah, right, anyway, were so perfectly Summer is people. not enough. That's great. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, it's not mid-budget. So we okay, but you know,
0: so, so thinking about mid-budget movies, we're thinking of things like um, Fatal Attraction. If on the thriller side, Fatal Attraction that fall into that. Basic Instincts. Um, what else would we be thinking of? Yeah. Well, I, I mean those are
1: good. Um, I'm also thinking it, other than thrillers, you also have a, a lot of genres that I think benefit from having a mid rather than a low budget, uh, rom-coms, I'm thinking sleepless in Seattle maybe, yeah, yeah. or, or comedies like the bird cage. The bird cage actually has some pretty strong production values behind it. There's some really nice camera work. It's, yeah. it's really well put together. There's a good bit of money being spent on it. Um, the first wives club had a decent budget and I'm, I'm referring to a lot of nineties movies here. I'm sorry, I'm an old person, but also <laughs> the nineties er, was a time when you could get a lot of mid-budget movies out and they'd make good. They do really, really well at the box office. Like I'm, I'm looking at the domestic box office for April, 1996. Number one is primal fear. Number two is the bird which was a mid-budget comedy. Three is A Thin Line Between Love and Hate, which is like a thriller, I guess. Um, Sergeant Bilko, comedy, James and the Giant Peach, Oliver and Company, that's a Disney re-release. Executive Decision, which is another thriller about like terrorists. Fear, which was, I believe, like a thriller about a stalker scaring this woman who who dumped with him, flirting with disaster and up close and personal. And Fargo is in number 11. So we have like- It's notable that we have this really interesting mix of like different genres, you know, different budgets. There are some big budget ones and then there are some kind of smaller budget ones. You've got thrillers, you've got comedies, you've got like romance, you've got animation. If you look at contemporary domestic box office, your top tens today are probably going to be mostly sequels, reboots, pre-existing IPs. And that's a big difference too, is that a lot of, some of these in the 1996 April top 10 were- pre-existing ips i mean james and the giant peach the birdcage is a remake of a prop of a popular french comedy
0: but yeah. a lot of them were were kind of new but i mean even even the birdcage even a remake of a popular french comedy mm-hmm. is not exactly in the same scale as for example the
1: right or like star three, wars the
0: thread of <laughs> spider-man yeah no <laughs> right right Thinking about when this actually stopped happening, I because I did some research into um, Planet of the Apes because that's one of my things that I, I've been writing about, and um, in 2014, the top 10 films in the American box office. Of those top 10 films, the only ones that weren't part of a franchise or weren't reboots, the only one that wasn't was Interstellar. Wow, Christopher Nolan sci-fi movie. Um, and everything else, and and the, you know the lowest budget of those was the seconds of the plant New Planet of the Apes movies, which were surprisingly popular given um, g- given how little people think about them. Everything else was a Marvel movie or a DC movie or something like that, basically. Right. right. Or star. Yeah, it was before Star Wars came back, but yeah, um, just all all Marvel movies, all DC movies, all sort of superhero movies and interstellar and planet of the apes which was of course also a franchise movie so at some point between 1996 and 2014 when you can probably narrow down the mid-budget movie basically vanished from the scene pretty much right i was thinking about this as, as, as i said before we started recording i also watched a film in yesterday called the reaping which was a folk horror film um did OK Numbers at the American box office. It came out in 2007. It starred Hilary Swank. It's it's a folk horror movie about um, someone who travels to a town in the deep south and discovers that the 12 biblical plagues of Egypt are happening one by one. 10 biblical plagues of Egypt. God, Easter Sunday, I'm recording this and I still can't get my Bible <laughs> right. Um, the 10 biblical plagues of Egypt are happening in real time. Yeah,
1: Passover was yesterday,
0: I think. Right, yeah, I <laughs> know, right. I should get this right. <laughs> Passover was yesterday. It's also Rabadad as well. It's like we've got the three fur this weekend. Um, but yeah, uh, we've got three fur, is that even a word? Anyway, so we've got this film and it costs 40, 40 million to make which I think falls into your mid-budget range, I think. Yeah. Towards even the bottom end of that, and it stars Hilary Swank and Idris Elba and a lot of character actors who are in lots of stuff. Anna-Sophia Robb is listed alongside Idris Elba and Stephen Ree and David Morrissey. Anna-Sophia Robb, I think, was Violet Beauregard in The Timber and um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, mm. which is the only other thing I've seen this girl in, but she's given quite high billing, which gives you some idea of sort of the level they're playing at. But it's, you know, it's a perfectly serviceable mid-budget folk horror film. It's much more fancy than any horror film I've seen made after about 2011. Mm. There's much more going on. They've spent more on the special effects are actually pretty decent. You know, it's got decent, decent practical, decent special effects, decent digital special effects. They're really well done. Because, you know, any film with CGI in it it's gonna age more than more than practical effects. But just thinking, any horror film made after about, in fact, two thousand nine, I think, it's gonna be really low budget after yeah. that.
1: Yeah, generally, yeah. I mean, not super micro budget, but but pretty much low budget. Um, I'm sorry, I've been looking at the grosses number what number one films throughout nineteen ninety six week by week and the top 10 tend to be big budget things, Independence Day, Twister, Mission Impossible, The Rock, but up there, The Birdcage is up there and A Time to Kill is up there, which was a legal thriller. And The First Wives Club, like, imagine that number 10 of the entire year box office hit was a comedy about middle-aged divorced women. Like, I can't imagine that happening today. And something that strikes me too, is I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it again. The Birdcage was number one for four weeks straight in 1996. Again, mid-budget comedy and a mid-budget gay comedy. How many of the top 10 box office hits in, in the USA today are like so, so fucking gay? And I don't mean, oh, there's, a, there's an ambiguously gay character who's kind of feminine, who's on screen for 20 seconds and so, and we made it that way, so that you know, in a, in a more conservative country, we can edit out anything. No, I mean, like the bird cage is inescapably gay. There is no way to edit that movie to make it not gay. It's yeah, super boy. fucking gay, like up front, right in your face, gay. And I know a lot of the the jokes from it kind of aged, you know, not not the best, but yeah. but still, like it's it's nineteen ninety six. It's, you've got like a major A-lister, Robin Williams, who's done a ton of like wholesome family movies. He was the voice of the genie in Aladdin playing a gay nightclub owner. And and the message is very overtly like, fuck you. It's unfair of you to ask me to be different. I'm, I'm going to be super, super gay and you can't stop me. And if you try to like, try, if you try to change me, you're the asshole. <laughs> and that was 25 years ago. And. What do we yeah. have now? <laughs> what do we have? The, the, the crimes of Grundy Fundy,
0: where oh we
1: have 11 seconds of homosexuality that is easily edited out for, for showing in Singapore and China. So that, that that's an aspect of the mid-budget that I want to talk about. The reason why mid-budget is so special, right? Let's talk about like the, the reasons, just the, the practical reasons is if you are a very, very low budget, there's a limited amount that you can really do. You right. don't have much money to do special effects. You've, you've really got to limit the number of sets, the number of costumes, the number of this, the, you know, your special effects, you've got to be really, really light on special effects. You probably can't hire a big star unless somebody agrees to work for a super low paycheck, just because they really like the project. Um, yeah. You might have some trouble finding a distributor There you, you there's just a very limited amount you can do because you don't have the budget for it a big, big budget movie, you have the budget to do incredible special effects, but because it's such a big investment for the studio, obviously they want to return on that investment. So they need to take fewer risks. That means like, oh, we can't give you a sad ending because that'll piss off audiences. Oh, we better not have an interracial relationship, you know, in the in the, in the main cast. We you definitely have a
0: sad ending, but You can't have it a sad ending.
1: Sequel. Yeah. You can't have you definitely can't have something that overtly like in your face, gay. Yeah. You know, if there's a woman character, you certainly can't have a star who's like a middle-aged woman. Sure. (laughs) Fucking you're not going to do that. Much less three of them complaining about their husbands. Like you can't take these risks. So a mid budget movie gives you this sort of magic where the budget's low enough where you ha- can take some risks. You have some creative freedom, but it's high enough so that you can still do stuff. You can still get some like cool monster effects. If this is a sci-fi movie yeah. or something, or, yeah. or you can hire like a good star, or you can have some really great sets and really beautiful costumes. Like maybe you can make a beautiful period drama, or maybe you can start your, you can have some like really fancy camera work or something, or, or maybe you can film like on location in New York city. Cause that's fucking expensive to do right so it's this like magic zone and that's why i'm sad that we're losing it because that's where you get some really really remarkable movies that can be like accessible but really but groundbreaking and interesting and and they can you can do so much there and that's why the loss of it is such a fucking tragedy
0: right yeah and i mean you know and there's, there's a certain sort of um a certain sort of actor who became a star in a mid-budget movie, we were kind of losing, aren't we? When you get the people in a low-budget movie, there's a certain kind of like certain sort of thing you see, like for example Jason Statham. Right. The king of the mid-budget action movie. Right, he's great. Who doesn't love Jason Statham? Growling in a Cockney accent all the time. Doing ridiculous stunts,
1: beating the shit out of someone with a hose. Yeah.
0: What's not to love about driving very, very fast and exchanging rough wise kicks, white wise cracks with with diesel van and, and 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 I don't know, maybe The Rock if the Rock's having a rough day. Although the rock's moved into the big budget, hasn't he really? Yeah, he's he's doing Disney movies now. Um no, he's making um he's made a DC movie. Actually, he's made um some superhero movie involving lightning flashes and things. Okay. I think I saw a trailer for it. it It's The Rock. And um Mm -hmm. it was sort of it was a twofer trailer because it also had the flash on it, the Ezra Miller Flash movie, which again Mm -hmm. is like um do you know anyone who actually cares about the flash? I don't know, maybe not really. No. And yeah they're gonna just throw a gajillion dollars at that and somehow not think it's a risk.
1: I I don't know. I mean, the Eternals again, it's like, oh,
0: I, I think they knew
1: it was a risk. Here's my cynical take about the Eternals. I think they gave it to like an Asian woman director because they knew it was a risk and they didn't want like a white guy to take the fall when it inevitably failed because no one cared about Kingo and Sprite. No one was excited about those characters. No one knew who the fuck they were.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's been how long since anybody published an Eternals comic that anybody cared about? Yeah. Um, these aren't
1: these aren't characters you know you grew up with like superman batman you know you grew up pretending to be wonder woman whatever
0: you, you did not grow up right. pretending to be kingo you know they got i think i think it's because they got they managed to get rocket raccoon into a movie and yeah you know and i i, re- I remember because i'm i'm from the era where american comics were reprinted in british comics but british comics came out weekly mm. so we used to go through the material really really fast which is why British comics started making their own and why you get people like Alan Moore writing superhero comics before he decided not to, not to write superhero comics and decided to go off and be angry. But that meant that we got to see like really obscure superheroes really quickly. So I, the superheroes I remember from comics as a kid are things like Machine Man and Rocket Raccoon and mm. things like that. So when I, I saw the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and it was mildly diverting. It wasn't bad. But the main my main issue with it was also sitting there and going, bloody hell, that's Rocket Raccoon. No one's thought about Rocky Raccoon for 30 years. He's there at a big screen. And then and then also that bloody duck as well. Um, who, who I have issues with. Oh right. right. May be aware. Um, yeah. imagine being 10 years old when the worst ever Marvel movie ever comes I, out. Yes. Sorry, hey, Harley. Um, yeah, imagine 10 my chair. years old and called Howard when Howard the Duck comes out. Oh, that's fun. Uh, yeah. Never forgive, never forget. So yeah, um, for those of you listening at home, Harley has just come to the mic and then gone away, presumably, because he's a cat. We're bemoaning the loss of this sort of movie and sort of thinking, I think you sort of see a gradual change looking at the box offices from about the early mid 2000s is when it starts to die off on the vine and it's gone by about 2011, 2012. Mm. So I'm looking at, I'm looking at the 2005 box office and I'm seeing number five is wedding crashes. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily a great movie, but you know, number 10 is Hitch. You know, I mean, all right, Will Smith, but Will Smith is the budget. Number 14 is Meet the Fockers, which is the um, right. sequel to Meet the Parents. Um, 17 is The Pacifier, you know, the one of The Rock's early, earlier comedy films. Walk right. the Line, um, Flight Plan. You know, the, these are all in like the top 20 or thereabouts. And Monster In-Law is number 23. All of those fit solidly into that mid-budget bracket don't they and they sort of gradually kind of vanish there right right and there there's a couple
1: reasons for that i mean the first we got to address is streaming like right a lot of the sort of lower or mid-budget movies get kind of dumped onto streaming and onto the movie theaters because the idea is, well, people will only go to the movies to see these big blockbuster movies because we want to see, you know, we want to see the spectacle on screen. And I get that. I have heard a lot of people say like, well, if I'm going to watch a legal drama, I might as well watch it at home because if I'm going to the theater, it it should be for like the spectacle, which I can kind of get that. I can kind of get that. So, so there is that. And granted during the era of COVID, like shit's just just kind of screwy. I almost feel like maybe we should count. Maybe we should just not count that at all because like all bets are off. It's just a different situation. Um, But in general, I think in culture, there is just a loss of the mid, the middle everywhere. This applies to publishing too, like mid, mid list authors are kind of in decline books, publishing companies, put everything behind a small number of writers that they heavily promote and give like massive bloated advances and, and really, really push. And then just like, kind of dump everybody else, just dump their books out with no promotion and say, well, good fucking luck. Like uh, Peter Watts, oh, yeah. who who won, I think a Hugo award, um, the sci-fi author complained that Tor basically did that to him. They, they dumped his, just kind of dumped his book out there with a very small print run and very few copies and a really, really horrible uh, cover. And he was so furious with how badly they handled it. He just put his book up for free on his website. And as a result, people got really interested in it and were reading it like crazy. And people were ordering more and more copies of the book and the publisher just refused to do a second print run, even though these were like pre-orders, these were guaranteed sales. They just That's didn't. wild, isn't it? So I don't think we can purely blame the free market. I don't think we can purely blame it. I think there's a sense of tail wagging the dog here where for whatever reason, publishers and, and movie ex- studio executives kind of get into this mindset of this is all we want to do. But I do think mid-budget, mid-list authors and mid-budget movies do have the ability to, to, to make it. Like, okay, let's look at Knives Out. I'm, I'm looking, I just looked it right, up, Knives right, Out. It yeah. came out in 2019. Budget was $40 million. That is solidly mid budget, right? Yeah. yeah. It was a huge fucking hit, massive hit. It, and you can argue, I know some people love the movie, some people hate it. They think, right, oh, it's too it's clever, a... blah, blah, blah. But you can't deny, like, this was a hit. People loved it. It, it made very good money. It, it was a very profitable film. And watching it, I was struck with, like, the thought that, you know, in the 90s, we got. We would get a bunch of movies that are just like this every year, Yeah, like a mid-budget, you know, comedy, mystery, thriller, whatever, with a really solid cast, like a big cast of characters and people kind of playing off each other and having a good time. And we would get like a dozen of these every year. We get, you know, four weddings and a funeral. We'd get like A Fish Called Wanda. And they weren't really special, and now that sort of thing is so special and so rare that a movie that really, like, I liked it, but it wasn't, like, mind-blowing. But people were, like, losing their shit, because we don't really get these on the big screen anymore. And the fact that it was so popular to me proves that this mo- it is still financially viable. You can absolutely make mm-hmm. good money yeah. on a mid-budget movie, because Knives Out did it. So and, and I
0: mean, not- why can't we have more of these? <laughs> The, the, the adjective that struck me with knives out was delightful, not world shattering or kind of it's just it was just delightful. It was just you sort of watched it, you go, oh, that was fun. And, th- and yeah. then you went on oh, with your life. That's it. It's kind of fun and delightful. And it's not world shattering. It's not at the same time, it's not going to sell action figures or no. buy t-shirts or or, or or get people dressing up as characters from it at comic conventions. That, I, I think that's also part of it. I mean, there's a there's the way of monetizing a movie that goes way beyond the actual movie, isn't there? And I mean, you know, particularly yeah. Disney's stuff.
1: Yeah, um, like you can see the way that Disney has mishandled or, or just really doomed to fail some of the mid-budget movies that it, it got as part of its deal with, what was it, Fox?
0: Fox, yeah.
1: Like, the way it bought up Fox and that just dumped the last duel with, like, no, pre- no promotion and it, of course, floundered. I mean, granted, really? this it is during, during the pandemic, but it was so poorly handled. Like, yeah. quite often I'll see a movie coming out at my local theater and it's a mid-budget movie and I've never fucking heard of it because yeah. it just doesn't isn't getting any sort of promotion and, you know, I'll end up looking up the trailer and going and, like, actually having a good time. Like, did, did you see any at all promotion for the outfit no no i did not see a trailer for that or anything no like i i ended up seeing it in theaters just because it was my local theater and i had a great time it, it was a lower mid-budget thriller like one of those boxed in thrillers that all takes place in in this one area it's basically a guy 1950s chicago an english guy who owns a tailor shop and because it's Chicago in the 50s he makes suits for the mob and he gets a little too involved in mafia stuff and it's not earth-shattering it's not mind-blowing but it is a nice tight thriller that's enjoyable it was a it was a good tight like 90 minutes too so it doesn't overstay its welcome and i had a great time watching it i did not regret the time i spent in the theater it was it was a really good experience and i'm just thinking like we used to get movies like that frequently
0: Yeah, in fact, actually, (laughs) the thing that reminds me of that is did you ever see any promotion for Hotel Artemis? No. About four years. Have you even heard of it? I don't know what the hell it is. Okay, Hotel Artemis starred Jodie Foster and Jeff Goldblum and Sophie Patella and Charlie Day. Oh shit. Dave And Did I say anything like that? Dave Bautista twice? I don't know. But anyway, and it's basically Jodie Foster... Plays a washed up, slightly alcoholic paramedic who mm-hmm. runs a no questions asked hotel in a near future cyberpunk Los oh, wow. Angeles. That sounds right up my alley. So it's basically all set in the one building where a bunch of career criminals all rock up in the building looking for help from the paramedic who doesn't ask questions at okay. the same time and yeah I, I don't think it that sounds fun it didn't even crack half of its budget right but it wasn't a bad movie it was quite fun and just jodie foster carried that movie but of course as you said yourself you don't get a middle-aged woman right heading an action movie it wasn't really action it was a thriller but it was um it's kind of great. He, he, Dave Bortista was particularly great. You know, Dave Bortista basically plays the bouncer on the door and he's thick as two short planks and kind of just this, this big stupid brute. And it's kind of great, you know. Char- all the characters, all the characters in in it, apart from Jodie Foster just doesn't have a name. She's just the nurse, okay? Hmm. All the other characters are called... Place names—they're called Waikiki, Acapulco, Niagara, Nice, Everest, and Honolulu—and you know they're all got place names. So everybody's got a code name, and it flopped. It didn't do well. Another, uh, another one that didn't do well, roughly the same time, and again, forty million budget was Alex Garland's adaptation adaptation of Annihilation, as well. Oh, I loved that one. That was a great movie. Didn't get released in theaters here at all in 2018 oh, it went straight to netflix it's a netflix original in the uk
1: oh it's a really it's a visual movie it, it, i'm yeah, really glad i got I, to see it in theaters because I you have some really have seen weird trippy visuals scream. but it it's flopped beautiful. so badly
0: in the states oh another and one that did oh sorry go ahead but yeah i mean it was going to be released here but mm-hmm. it wasn't even it was going to be released simultaneously as it was in the states but they didn't even give it a chance they lost their nerve so it flopped because it wasn't promoted.
1: Yeah. Also, a couple of years ago, 2018, another a mid-budget one that flopped. I did see some promotion for it, but not like the big kind of hype machine. You know, when a when a when a Marvel movie comes out, you get the big hype machine. And I think when the horror movie, a low-budget or mid-budget horror movie comes out, mm-hmm. you get the hype machine just because horror people are so like into horror. And, what? you know, and it's like you root for your own thing and, and horror people, I think, actually like seeking out like new things they they haven't seen before. They're not like, oh, boy, here's the next sequel. They get really excited of, oh, hey, someone's made this movie, you know, this new thing like horror half of horror stories are about someone uncovering an obscure hidden text that, you know, un- unleashes a hell mouth. So I guess that's yes. what horror people love. We love finding obscure things. But love a 2018 movie. budget of forty two million dollars. Widows flopped horribly and I'm still angry about it. Widows, I never had it. It's really good. It came in, it was directed by Steve McQueen, like the guy who did 12 Years a Slave. Oh God, yeah. And it and it's a really good heist movie. It, the premise is that these, these cr- male criminals, they get killed in a heist, but they left a bunch of debt behind. And now like they're widows because they, these men owed money to like a really, really scary ga- gangster guy their widows realize, okay, the only way we can pay this guy off, because if we don't pay this guy off, he'll fucking kill us is they got to do a heist now. Right. And it's like really good. And it's about like the political corruption in, in Chicago. And a lot of it's about like the failure of the Obama administration. And it's about racism. Right. And right. I, I, I get mad because I, I see so many people like getting hyped for like, oh, look, this marvel movie has a token diverse character in the background I'm like widows centered all the main characters are women and like two of the major characters are black one is latina you didn't you didn't get excited for that and these are like stories that while exaggerated obviously not many women will do a criminal heist right. but it's like women dealing with like actual shit that women might actually have to deal with sort of in terms of like gender relations and and poverty and shit and it's like no, we, we don't want to hear that. We want to, we we want to see the eight seconds of gay content that will be edited out for Singapore. That's
0: what we want. <laughs> course. Cool. Fuck <I> you. <laughs> also, on the horror level, I think also um, I just looked up um, a cure for wellness. Hmm. That had okay. budget of about forty million. Gore Verbinski directed it, so it's the only. One of two original movies Gore Verbinski's actually made that weren't franchise movies. Wow. Because he made all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Oh, right. And he made the Ring movies. The the oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the American Ring movies. Right. And the only two films that he made that weren't franchise movies were Rango, the CGI animation about... The one about a lizard? The lizards. The, the lizard cat The pet lizard who gets lost in a wild west town who's voiced by Johnny Depp. Okay. And... Um, <laughs> And, and A Cure for Wellness, which is a batshit folk horror movie about junior executive who goes looking for a missing senior executive who's gone missing at this very strange spa in the middle of Europe, up a mountain. And um, the, the junior executive is played by Dane Dehaan, who's one of those people who they try to like put as a, as a star in movies, but never oh, really yeah. got... He, he was... Um, he played Valyrian when they, when um, Luke Besson huh. tried to adapt the Valyrian comics opposite Cara Delevingne, who was Laura line in Valyrian in the City of a Thousand Planets, I think it was called. This film is it's a long horror film. It's basically in the tradition of that particular nineteen seventies style of serious horror film, hmm. like The Changeling or The Shining or movies gotcha. like. That there's lots of weird shit happening. It goes completely off the rails, completely off the rails in the last 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's quite entertaining. It's quite entertaining, it's quite strange. It disappeared without trace. Um I own the DVD because (laughs) I would, but yeah, um, very odd film. I I need to watch it again, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again. One of the points that you've been making is not just that it's not that they're not necessarily making these films is that they're not taking risks on them. No, the, they'll
1: maybe they'll make the movies, but they'll just dump them on streaming. They'll yeah. open them in a handful of small theaters, but not really push them. And when you saw knives out, like knives out had a hype machine behind it. it the, the studio very clearly promoted it. I, I remember seeing ads for it all over the place. I remember seeing there was a lot of promotion behind it. And it worked. And I just wish we'd see other movies get some kind of promotion. And unfortunately, like the media landscape, the way it is where it's just get, get the clicks you know, chase chase the algorithms like also ha- I think plays into a problem. Like if you look at the A V Club, the decline of the A V Club 10, 15 years ago, mm, yeah, they also would do a lot of work to examine some mid-budget movies that are coming out and like talk about them and reviews that review them and interview the actors or the d- or the director or something. And now it's just like, let's describe the latest episode of WandaVision. Let us, or, or Screen Rant, which is, just feels like it's written by robots. Like, oh, yeah. though it is written by people paying, being paid way too little money. So I can't blame them for writing it so, really so poorly. If I'm being paid $20 to write an article, you better believe I'm not spending more than 10 minutes on it. <laughs> That's it's just true. sort of let me rephrase the marketing copy For this big budget studio, like there's there's very little in pop culture that's examining and and talking about things that aren't already big, because you get more clicks talking about the latest Avengers movie than talking about a Um, A a previously unknown, like not pre-existing IP mid-budget movie. You get, you don't make, you don't get as many clicks talking about widows or talking about, you know, the outfit or talking about a cure for wellness as you'll get talking about the Disney live action remake of whatever the fuck else they decide to live action remake.
0: Well, quite, you know, it's like, let's, let's make another movie about one of the female baddies Mm -hmm. from, uh, from an animated movie. Let, let's yeah. make another evil queen movie. Yeah.
1: Uh, and and it is remarkable when something manages to break through that without like the hype machine behind it. Like I guess yeah. Squid Game, it's I know it's a series, not a movie, and it is purely on streaming, but the fact that it managed to get there without wide promotion and without like the think piece industrial complex behind it either, that it just organically became this mega hit. Which I, I, if you said like, hey, guess what? This um, really bleak kind of dystopian South Korean series is going to be the biggest hit in the United States next year. I'd be like, what? What? You know, that Indeed, is not a yeah. thing I would predict.
0: No, no. But, like it absolutely can happen. <laughs> and it did happen. Yeah. And I mean, part of that, part of that is due to the fact that, you know, the kids, and I speak is someone who, has a number of teenagers in the house,
1: yeah,
0: and it's really interesting watching their watching habits. You know, it's like when they watch something, they watch it. I, I have ai am a 15 year old um, year old woman who is watching currently currently binging the reboot of Dynasty, yeah, which is expensive trash, but it's not that expensive. But, but yes, um, and I think the Think Piece Industrial contact Complex. Um, as as you so fantastically called it, is actually part of this, isn't it? It's it's yeah. like I I personally know I've had a blog for some years where I've written about movies and things, and the things that have gotten the most clicks for me because I don't I don't deal with like enormous big budget movies on the whole, but it's never the recent big mid budget movies that get the clicks for me. It's mm. either the super low budget stuff with like insane and slightly frightening cult cult followings right right like fans of midsummer do make you not want to write about the movie but also also movies made 40 years ago are what people really want to write about nobody wants anything new they want another take on the wicker man they want to take on phase four they want to take on right um let's scare jessica to death you know they don't want to take on you know the low budget the you know midsummer got lots of lots of clicks mm-hmm. you know and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre people want to hear yeah. about again, but not the Mid-budget new one. or midsummer definitely got a lot of hits, probably because
1: of the immense runaway popularity of Hereditary. Like Indeed. that was a super low-budget movie that like blew people's fucking minds and made a ton of money. So it is probably why
0: it did. And I, I mean, I kind of, kind of was in the lucky position of being able to include quotes. From an interview I did with Ari Aster in the piece I did about Midsummer, mm-hmm. which got a lot of clicks as well, because a lot of people wanted to hear what he had to say about it, which is nice. But um, you know, and everybody wants everybody wants an original, original interview and things like that. Right, right. Um, but the most popular things I've ever written about are the Wicker Man and right. Phase Four, which is a cult movie made in the mid-70s and directed by Saul Bass, the um, the opening sequence guy, it's his only film, about the ants getting smart and taking over. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's the best ants getting smart and taking over movie. You know, there, aren't, yeah. there is no better ants taking getting smart and taking over movie um, that exists. But nonetheless, you just sort of think, how did I get 10,000 hits for that? When no one wants to hear about a cure for wellness for instance no one wants to hear about a more recent thing like um some of the stuff on netflix is happening you know i do think people want to hear it i i think it's just a bit of the
1: tail wagging the dog and like how do you present it right like like i uh, one thing i'll say is that okay the av club has declined but the reason it declined is because it was economically viable right like it got bought out by a venture capital firm that ruined it right well the venture capital firm bought it because it was working like it was making so it it, this was a website that got a shitload of attention and a a lot of respect so that's why it got bought out not because people didn't want to read it but because they did similar thing with deadspin deadspin did was one of the part of the gawker empire it was a sport website that had really, really smart, insightful sports writing. And it was one of very few places you could go that wasn't just about like the hype machine that did really thoughtful reporting on sports. And it was economically viable. It made a profit, not a giant one, made a modest profit, but still like these days doing any kind of journalism that's profitable, like that's pretty fucking rare. So as a result, it got bought out by a venture capital firm that fucking
0: ruined it just destroyed it they just ground it into the ground because they're like how can we squeeze this
1: so so i think part of it too is this this idea of the expectation of the percentage of profits you're going to make it's not enough to make like a modest reasonable profit you've got to make a zillion profit and you make a massive you know crazy profit either by a micro budget movie which if it makes any kind of profit it's it's going to be if it makes any kind of money it's going to be making a really good amount because just the budget's so small just proportionately or a giganto movie which if you if you promote it enough even if it's really shitty it'll probably do okay except maybe morbius or oh, or eternals goodness. or i mean i think i think we've seen a couple of big ones fail well, maybe, i haven't which, I haven't which gives me some serious schadenfreude serious schadenfreude
0: <laughs> I, has, Mor- has morbius failed i haven't i haven't paid attention Hasn't it? i i know i'm pretty sure it's doing pretty bad let me see morbius box I'm, office to be honest, who wants to watch him watch a film about the ugliest and most pointless of the 1970s marvel horror characters i mean if you're gonna mm. make if you're gonna make a pick a 70s marvel horror character at least pick satana the devil's daughter because she's got those amazing fluffy boots So I'm looking it up. Morbius
1: had a very good um, first opening week, but then it Morbius suffers second worst box office drop ever. Oh, for a superhero movie. So it opens strong, but the second, let's see, uh, it opened at 39 million at the domestic box office, but the second weekend shows it dropping really, really bad. um, Earning just over 10 million. So it's like a huge
0: fucking drop. Everyone who goes to see a superhero movie went to see Morbius because it's a superhero movie. Right, and They told right. their mates that it sucked. And they went
1: like, don't, don't,
0: don't bother. <laughs> don't that. see that, don't it sucks. That. This sucks.
1: This is terrible.
0: Yeah, like, I, I don't know. I mean, the MCU, there's got to be a point. There was going to have to be a point where the MCU were going to make a film that tanks. Could- if it
1: eventually, like maybe the stars will just get kind of too old. And no amount of HGH pumping into them will be enough and, <laughs> and the replacement won't be as good. Or we're seeing maybe they're running out of big characters and people are like, who the who the who the fuck is Morbius? Who I don't know who the fuck Morbius is. I don't get who
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean Who's Thena? Who the fuck is Thena? No one cares, you know. Yeah, I didn't recognize any of the characters in the Eternals and I wasn't interested no. in seeing it. It's not really no. not sprite. my character.
1: Kind of like, just the weird canami a character sprite. I think mean, Jack Kirby. That's a soda. <laughs> that's a fucking soda. Yeah, I'm sure that's their Sprite in the comic, but like, oh, okay, yeah. Let me let me follow the adventures of of Mellow Yellow. Let me let me watch a movie about Faygo.
0: No. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're gonna make a movie about an obscure '70s character, you least make a fun one as well. Yeah. I mean, Eternal's kind of boring. I mean, why don't you like you know, if you do it in DC? Why don't you do Mister Miracle? Like yeah. a dude who's the, well, the universe's greatest escape artist and he's called Scott Free. And, yeah. you know, it's like, who doesn't want to watch a movie about a guy called Scott Free? Damn. Like, and like the, the Rock's superhero movie is Black Adam. Like, huh. who the hell is Black Adam? you know he's a dc dc superhero i mean granted
1: ant-man did really well and i don't think anyone would if you if you'd ask me to say like will ant-man succeed i'd say like of course not like it's fucking ant-man who gives a shit about ant-man but it did fine so so obviously like i can't predict this i am not in touch with what normal people want evidently i mean
0: i think it's because guardians of the galaxy surprised everyone yeah really and guardians of the galaxy wasn't was quite fun wasn't it you know it wasn't it wasn't an unfun movie it it had but they do seem to like you want to squeeze these things and it's that that need to squeeze that desire not to take any risks and it's essentially where our culture is going isn't it And, and that goes like at all levels from like you know as you said literature I mean
1: oh yeah one of the reasons speculative fiction part in particular, you see, like yeah, here are the massive trends, here are here are the imitators, um here here are the like you look at the the output of of Tor, and I've noticed that a lot of what a typing up is just sort of like here's a response to something old that you already know. Like a a book that Tor was hyping up really big was this sort of queer, openly queer, diverse fantasy version of The Great Gatsby. And I read an interview with the author and I'm not like dunking on the author, but what what happened is the author was working on an original novel and her editor told her to stop doing that and then instead write this Great Gatsby thing. And I find that kind of depressing because it's like, you're to- you told someone to stop working on something that was like personal and original and say, like, No, 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 Great Gatsby's copyright is about to expire. You know, write something based on that because that's valuable IP.
0: That'll yeah, sell better. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, it's like, you know, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies a year back. Yeah. The floodgate for that. But I mean, isn't this is kind of an evolution of what things have been happening for decades that have sort of gotten worse and worse and eventually reached a sort of like um, shit singularity. Yeah. That kind of hit like, because I think about the, the career trajectory of Frank Herbert, because obviously mm. I'm thinking about Dune and, of course, the recent adaptation right. of it, which all the posters called Dunk, which Frank Herbert, you know, he had other series of novels. He had other novels. He had a, he had a novel right. about libertarians in space, he had novels about futuristic nuclear submarines and people doing espionage. On them and saboteurs and paranoia. And he had all the novels about post-apocalyptic novels and things like that. And at some point, his publisher was basically like, Frank, why we would love to see another space libertarian politician's novel. How about another June novel? Because that's what the people are paying for. And you know, by, by by the sixth June, or have you? I, I'm assuming you've read June. I've How only read the book?
1: first one. I know they get like super weird and ridiculous. Weird, ridiculous, and horny towards the end. I mean, like to be fair, that was the first one too.
0: Yeah, yeah, There's... no, 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 no. no, no, no. Compare the first, make the first one. The first one looks like freaking Tolstoy compared to by the time mm. you get to chapter house June. This has snowballed, you know. So he's, you know, he's what you're talking about A mid Frank Herbert I think is fair to say is probably sort of a mid level sort of mid mid to high level list writer in his day hmm. think, I mean I mean you, I think about writers who you used to see these writers produce new stuff and be promoted like you know a new Michael Moorcock novel you'd see right up until the 90s you know I mean all right that dude's about 80 but he's still writing but you know, no, one's talking about a new Michael Moorcock novel. No one's promoting it. You know, that sort of thing. Well, partly because he's about 80. But no one, there's no one's replaced people like him on the list. And likewise, you know, I mean, I'm more familiar, obviously, the horror scene. And you look at the Bram Stoker Awards, and the Bram Stoker Awards is dominated by micro presses. Right. You know, it's micro presses and the occasional massive name. And and even I writers said, who are the absolute stars of the current genre yeah are on micro presses so like josh malaman okay mm. the guy who wrote bird box won oh, a Stoker of wow. a bird box and then it got turned into a yeah. Netflix movie Sandra bullock he's a micro press you know I, right. I i mean lucky enough to have on this podcast um Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn keist you know multiple bram stoker award winner but you have not heard of any of the press, presses that published Gwendolyn's work.
1: Mm.
0: You know, it's all tiny presses. I mean, she, she deserves, she deserves to have her stuff turned into like big budget movies, but you know, she's not going to get more than the small budget movie. She's not even going to get a mid budget movie because no one makes movies like that anymore. Mm. Which is what we're talking about. Talent either gets stays in the Indies or it gets funneled right up to the top, where it essentially gets squeezed and adulterated. Well, it, it you get recruited by the, to the top,
1: but not to make your own thing, but yeah. to make sequels for pre-existing IP. So if you're like, say, a, a sci-fi writer who's doing pretty good, maybe Disney will hire you, but it's not going to hire you to like write an original thing. It'll be like, okay, we want you to write the sequel to a no- the novelization of the sequel of. You know our pre-existing IP or we want you to write some the next part of a pre-existing IP here are the very strict constraints with when in which you're allowed to work so I mean I can't blame them for going where the money is if you'd say no. well, we're gonna pay you a shitload of money and you can quit your crappy day job like yeah of course fucking do it you'd be a fool not to indeed but I, mean- I think it's regrettable for the rest of us because we're missing on these what these original voices could be giving us if,
0: totally, if, we, yeah. if they had a little bit
1: more behind them as opposed to
0: just being absorbed into the blob like like gareth edwards for instance a film director immediately springs to mind he made a fantastic film in the early 2000s called monsters mm. which have you seen that one about nah. a couple of people trapped beneath behind a border of an area that's basically infested by big tentacle monsters and it's an oddly beautiful film with like some very good monster effects. Um, he gets in the last 10 years, what's he made? He's made the 2014 retread of Godzilla, which as these things go, wasn't bad. And um, Rogue One. And that's mm-hmm. the, basically, and, you know, he, both of which were hits. They both did fine, but they're not as interesting as a film like Monsters, frankly. Monsters is a fascinating, great piece of drama, great piece of science fiction. But he doesn't get to make films like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Reeves has gone, started doing fairly interesting movies. And what's he doing now? He made two Planet of the Apes movies. Now he's made the last Batman film mm-hmm. with Robert Pattinson. You know, and this this is where it goes you, you you're right you, you sort of get recruited by the top level yeah and you don't and get to disappear and you lose anymore. your voice you lose your yeah
1: voice. J- i'm thinking of james gunn like he he makes oh, a yeah. lot of superhero movies now and he's one of the better ones but i recently watched his movie slither and it's fascinating because it's about oh, this goodness. alien monster that originally came from a rat from space And it takes over the small town and it like absorbs everybody into this collective consciousness and there's this bit where the monster yells i'm gonna keep growing till i'm all there is there won't be nothing else and i'm like and 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 as he's saying it all the human beings who he's recruited into this hive mind it's all these people who are like kind of stuck to his blobby form or they're shambling around like zombies they're all saying it in unison with him and i'm like this is kind of what Disney is. This is what it does to people. This is what these studios do to people, and now James Gunn is a part of that. And actually, getting offended when legitimate film—sorry, I'm being a snob here—but when legitimate filmmakers like Martin Scorsese say, "like this is a blob, I don't like it,"
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, and it's Martin Scorsese so crazy says-
1: making to me. Like James Gunn, you made a movie about this, and now you're part of it. I mean, this he is was you. Super. <laughs> I mean,
0: have you seen Super? super super is a it's sort of a superhero movie but only in as much as the guy who played dwight on the office uh rain wilson gets whacked over the head and decides to become a crime fighter because he's clearly gone wrong Mm. and he he dresses up in a costume and hits people with a hammer and his his catch his, his battle cry is shut up crime uh and it's a bloody and stupid and painful movie. Eventually he gets Elliot Page to be his sidekick or Elliot Page, um, the character Elliot Page plays, um, comes and d- is clearly as disturbed as he is and wants to be his sidekick, Balty. And there's this bit where they're about to like raid a villain's place and someone shoots a gun and the sidekick's head gets blown off before even Whoa. doing anything. Holy shit. You see, you see um, Elliot Page's heads with a massive hole in it from back to front. Mm. It's Really gross, and the film, this is, this is not the sort of film that you would expect to be part of the same oeuvre as the guy who made Guardians of the Galaxy right which is a fun film and it's got a couple of naughty jokes in it right but it's inoffensive really the joke about the uv lamp but that's it yeah what happens you know we we can be snobbish and talk about selling out and stuff and i mean i'd sell out given the chance wouldn't we all really Mm. honestly i don't know maybe you wouldn't i mean you've got integrity what does it actually mean to sort of sell out to this? What does it actually mean to be part of the blob, part of the slithery blob? That means that there ain't nothing else. Mm.
1: I mean, what, what it, the reality is, if you're part of the blob, it's like, it, it's your voice, but it's someone else speaking through you. It's it's not really authentically your voice anymore. And I can understand doing that just because it's like, you gotta, get, you gotta get paid. But what bothers me right. is seeing so many artists aspire to that. And the fact that we're not calling it selling out. And I also kind of roll my eyes at how many artists I, I see. So so many people in sci-fi, or, to be honest, aspiring to that because it's like, be real. Someone's not going. No one's buying. No one's going to buy you. Stop trying to sell out because no one's buying. When you accept that, you're free. <laughs> I accept that what I do is Disney's not going to buy what I do. No. No. and that's liberating because that means i'm going to do what i fucking want um but bringing it back to mid-budget um yes yeah. we talked a lot about the failure of mid-budget movies but mid-budget movies absolutely can succeed even in contemporary times yeah the john wick franchise is a oh. mid-budget franchise the first one was about 30 million dollars right and it's huge and and, it, and it's a cool tight thriller with a with a good star and and it's terrifically fun so these things can succeed if given the right treatment if, if given the right success but i think um, before before we wind down why don't we do. discuss why we want mid-budget stuff in theaters because a lot of people say like well what's wrong with streaming what, what's wrong with dumping these kinds of movies on streaming and not putting them in theaters and it's kind of hard to describe in terms of like, oh, I want the experience. Well, a lot of people don't care about the experience. I care about the experience because when I'm in a theater, I'm forced to put my fucking phone away and pay attention. And I definitely (laughs) get more out of a movie that way than if I'm watching it at home, uh, playing on my phone. But I I also do think that movies made for streaming versus made for, for film, there does tend to be more of a care into it much, much more care and attention to detail and much more of a sort of, <laughs> more like of an attempted at art put into movies that are put on the screen versus stuff that's dumped onto streaming. I, yes. I really do. If you look at like a mid-budget movie versus a net made for Netflix movie that costs about
0: the same amount, the Netflix movie is probably gonna look like shit. The Atom Project. The recent Ryan Reynolds thing that dropped on Netflix a couple of weeks ago—Ryan Reynolds' wisecracking time travel movie meets his 12-year-old self. Hilarity ensues. Mm. Bit of kung fu, bit of shooting, bit of flying around in CGI. It, yeah, utterly formulaic. It's Ryan Reynolds doing a Ryan Reynolds, and he's Ryan Reynoldsing as much as he possibly can. Yeah, because everybody's like, "There you go, Ryan. Just do your thing." You know, be an aviator. Yeah. That's not product placement. And yeah, that's exactly demonstrating what you talk about, isn't it? You know, that sort of thing is exactly it. So do you think there's hope for like the mid-budget? Do you think we sort of can do you think there's going to be a resurgence at any point? Do you think we wouldn't get tired of the blob? I mean, I don't know how to predict the
1: future, but I, I sincerely doubt that the way things are is the way things will always be. Like I wouldn't be surprised if there's, I'm sure there will be some other big change in the way that we watch movies and the way that we experience things. Um, I am worried that uh, about increased uh, monopolization of the entertainment industry might put an end to some of the antitrust laws that were put up in movie theaters. And like back in the day, a movie studio would own a chain of movie theaters and would like only show its own theater, its own movies. And if you were a studio from if like a different studio, it would be really fucking hard to get your movies into one of those theaters. Yeah. And I'm super worried about something like Disney doing something like that now. So that, mm. you know, Disney would own theaters and only show Disney movies. And if you are, you know, Lionsgate, if you are Neon, if you are in, distributed by A24, like you're, you c- cannot get in there.
0: Um, it's already happening to some extent. When Disney bought the Fox back catalog. Oh, yeah. That year, a whole bunch of film festivals that were showing classic movies basically just had to cancel because Disney yanked the permissions.
1: Right. And and they'll Show do these things where these they require the theater showing their movies to devote a certain percentage of screens yeah. and charge a certain amount. And it's really, really deeply disturbing that one one company um, can push other, can push theaters around that way. Like part of the reason I rail against Disney isn't just because the content, like I I could give a shit about the movies. Like, you know, some Disney movies are entertaining to yeah. be honest, yeah. but <clears throat> the way they do business is deeply troubling and anti-art and the way that they treat writers is deeply, deeply troubling too. Yeah. Yeah. like i don't know your listeners probably already know this but disney when it bought out the fox catalog just stopped paying a lot of the writers who were um under contract with fox it claimed like well you were on contract with fox not with us so we don't have to keep paying you royalties like but you bought fox you bought all their obligations like alan dean foster i get back in the 80s got a really really great contract to write um alien novelizations for the alien movies and he got like a an unusually good deal doing it which like fucking mm. good for him get that yeah. bag good for you you got you you got your good you got a really good agent hey it's
0: but off the back disney of just star wars st- novelizations yeah. but think. disney just fucking yeah. stopped
1: paying the guy his royalties
0: oh, which of course they did.
1: just didn't and it's super I, I i think he's managed to you know get a lot lo- get a lawyer and like fight them but disney's done that with a shitload of writers So it's deeply, deeply troubling to me to see this company getting bigger and bigger and more powerful. And it's deeply troubling to me to see so many writers like uncritically without reservations get excited over this. It's like this company will treat you like shit. You shouldn't be cheering for this. You know, I'll hear liberals sneering about like, midwesterners and southerners voting against their own self-interest by voting for hard right conservatives but it's like well you're fucking doing that by (laughs) by being a disney adult who writes sci-fi you're 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 supporting something that's against your own personal self-interest
0: indeed and i think that's where we're where it basically uh basically is at the moment isn't it it's, and and um okay so i think we've been talking for about an hour now i think mm-hmm. that i shall not monopolize you or harley's time any further i right? um obviously our <laughs> listeners can't see this but i see harley watching in the background oh yeah there he is he right behind it. you so we're very we've been very glad to have him on as a guest as well um oh that's henny actually that's henny is the
1: little chunk who's oh, doing some grooming harley is
0: Oh, there's, yeah, no, back down there Barbie as so you, well yeah yeah right there, he's there he's giving me he's giving me the stink eye now because i yeah he's a he's like,
1: a he's a rude little dude
0: yeah all right anyway but um raquel it only remains to me to thank you so much for coming on it's been a really interesting conversation um we've reached no conclusion we never do none it's just fine watch um, mid-budget
1: movies and talk about them
0: there. Indeed, if what the industry won't make is? a
1: hype machine, be your own hype machine. Fuck it. Indeed. I don't know. I don't know what else Indeed. to do. And read Blood Knife.
0: <laughs> and read Blood Knife. In fact, <laughs> read Blood actually, Knife. Actually, actually, before we go, Raquel, can you plug what, what it is you do? Now talk talk to me about what okay. you do and tell our listeners. Well,
1: all right. Well, in addition to, to to writing uh, short fiction. I also have a writing podcast called Write Good. That's R I T E G U D. It's hosted at kittysneezes.com. I also write for Blood Knife Magazine. Um, I've got a couple of pieces up on there. I've got a super short story called The Empath. I've got a rather famous essay called I'm Rather Famous. Ooh, I'm so, so <laughs> talking myself up, but whatever. I deserve it. Uh, called Called Every, Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny. And I've got another piece coming out soon-ish i'm not really sure when next next couple of months i'm not really sure when it'll come out but i've got another piece coming out on blood knife so so Looking
0: we'll, forward to we'll look for that all right um so yeah raquel thanks again and um i look forward to hearing more from you on right goods as well all right all right sure. thanks okay. Question Embodies is an independent podcast hosted and edited by me, Howard David Ingham. Music is by Stephen Horry. Thanks for listening.